Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast from the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Nadia Popovich. In this episode, we continue our series on the brain as Carl Schoonover takes us on a full-color visual tour of our complex, mysterious, and beautiful minds. The brain itself is it's exquisite. It has this incredible architecture. And so if you sort of paint on top of that architecture, then, then, then you're in for, for some good times. Schoonover is author of the much-praised new book, Portraits of the Mind, Visualizing the Brain from Antiquity to the 21st Century. In it, he recounts the history of the brain through striking images, from the earliest drawings conceptualizing the mind to state-of-the-art microscopic photos of a complex neural system in full color. Schoonover, who's a 27-year-old PhD student in neuroscience at Columbia University, has gotten widespread praise for the book. He came to speak at the Academy this past December. Science in the City caught up with him at Columbia's Medical Center for a brief glimpse into the mind behind the book. I'm here with Carl Schoonover at Columbia University. Say hello, Carl. Hello, Carl. So to begin, can you tell me a bit about yourself? I know you're not done with your PhD yet, but you wrote this book while you were doing your PhD. So um, can you talk a bit about your work here and then also about the book? Certainly. Um, so as you said, I'm a graduate student. I'm four years in. And uh, I work in a lab that studies the somatosensory cortex, which is the part of the brain that processes touch information. And uh, we study rodents, mice, and rats. And they have a very developed uh, sense of touch, especially uh, for their whiskers, which they use to recognize objects and avoid bumping into things when they're in dark tunnels and aren't using their eyes. And it's a very convenient model system to study broader structure and function in the brain. Uh, and so uh, the lab I work in looks both at anatomy, sort of very fine anatomical features like synapses and, and so forth, and also looks at the activity, the electrical activity of neurons um, as they're processing uh, sensory information coming in from the whiskers. And how did this lead you to the work in your book? Uh, well, obviously it's related um, because the book is all about neuroscience. Um, there's very little in it about the sort of work that I do because neuroscience is very broad. So the, the book was more of a parallel project, kind of a nights and weekends type thing. And uh, it, it sort of grew out of uh, the fact that neuroscience has uh, exquisite imagery in it. I mean, all of the images in the book are, are real data. There's no artist rendering here. This is really what things look like. I mean, obviously, they've been selected, and so this is a very small subset of, you know, raw neuroscience data. Uh, but nonetheless, this is really what one can sometimes be licensed to see if one gets lucky. And so um, there's this incredible visual vocabulary that many neuroscientists are familiar with, but that I thought Unfortunately, the public hasn't really had a chance to experience, say, in the way that the public has seen a lot of uh, cosmos imagery from NASA, which has been very good at um, disseminating their findings and also disseminating their imagery. And so uh, this book was sort of to try to do something like that, obviously on a much smaller scale, uh, but to make available uh, these beautiful things that we see when we look in the microscope, when we look at the MRI uh, results, you know, on the computer or when we look uh, on the physiolo physiological monitor. And can you tell us a bit about 
the research that went into this and how you went about finding the images or why those images in specific? Well, that's an interesting question because neuroscience, and I think probably biomedical research in general, um, isn't a field in which many of the practitioners are interested in their own history. And that included me up until I started thinking seriously about this book. Um, I think a lot of physicists tend to have at least a fair sense of the broad lines of their field over history, Newton, Einstein, Bohr, and so forth. Uh, partially, I think, because they've been written about a lot um, for the public, and so there's a lot of literature available on these topics. But also maybe because in physics, certain ideas tend to have staying power. Even if they're overturned, there's still sort of a sense of truth in them. Whereas biology, there have been some real breaks, um, and those were, those were characterized in, in, in my book, you know, with respect to neuroscience from, you know, antiquity onward, and, and real breaks even from the Renaissance. Um, and so in a way, I think uh, neuroscientists, and again, myself included, aren't as conscious of the history leading up to uh, where we are today. And so for me, um, writing this book and collecting the images was a real learning experience because I had very little sense of where we're coming from. And it was a marvelous exercise to become acquainted with 2,000 years worth of study of the brain. Was there anything in specific that sort of sparked this project? Um, well, there were several. One, one is uh, my longstanding love of uh, Santiago Ramón y Cajal, who uh, was a Spanish neuroscientist. This is sort of uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, an anatomist, and he's the one who really gave us the neuron as we know it today, the nerve cell. Um, he was not the one who I invented the idea of it, but he's the one who really sort of laid the foundations and proved that it is many of the things that we think it is today. And he also happened to be an exquisite draftsman. And um, there are probably several reasons for this, but one of them is that as a child and as a young man, he had real tendencies, real leanings towards uh, art, and in fact wanted to become an artist. Uh, his father forced him into medicine, but uh, only after uh, a young Cajal had you know, sort of experimented with, with, with drawing and with painting. And in fact, throughout his life, continued to experiment. He, he wrote a treatise on the sea print, right, the color print in photography. And uh, so, so he represents, I think, um, this, this very interesting fusion of, of a very strong aesthetic concern and also very interesting science sort of all, all in one. And, and he also happens to be, very conveniently for the narrative of the book, the, the father of the modern field. I mean, he really laid down the foundations. And today we're still working out the details of, of the broad lines that he laid out for us. So Cajal is one of the central figures, but can you talk a bit about the rest of the setup of the actual book and why you picked which starting point you did? So um, there, are, there are seven chapters, and um, I guess two main parts. The first is historical. The first two chapters deal exclusively with fairly ancient history and then more recent history. The first is uh, uh, second century Rome up until... Sort of mid 19th century, and the second chapter is about Cajal, uh, who who truly is the the Einstein of of neuroscience, and I think people haven't heard about him, and it's a real shame because he occupies that same space in the field as Einstein does in physics, sort of rejuvenating it and creating a whole new universe out of his mind, um, and so so I, I felt he really deserved his own chapter for for uh, to, to sort of explain how he made that transition and how the field made that transition from something very um, imprecise and, and poorly supported to uh, 
the, the beginnings of a modern research field. Um, and so those are the first two chapters. I started where I started because, um, well, the earliest image that's known, uh, Im- drawing of, of the brain is from 11th century Cairo. And there might very well be older ones, but as far as I know, they have not yet been uncovered. But really sort of the first principled descriptions of the brain uh, begin in 2nd century Rome with Galen, right, the the father of anatomy. And um, he actually had a very strong position against drawing. Um, He he believed that that anatomy should be described in words. But as far as historians know, he did not publish any drawings. Um, That said, there was a pretty major fire in his library, um, and so it's possible that there had been drawings of his, of the brain, but those have not survived. So what we have then is um, interpretations of his anatomy, of his descriptions of anatomy uh, in the form of drawing, and, and the earliest one that I know of uh, is this 11th century drawing in Cairo that's a, a, a depiction of the visual system um, from the eye all the way to the back of the brain where sort of things really start getting serious with vision. So I thought that was a logical place to start. Obviously, people were interested in the brain long before Galen. Aristotle talked about the brain, didn't think it was that interesting, didn't think that the mind happened there. He thought it was in the heart and that the brain was essentially a cooling system for the heart. So obviously there are many ways that that one could have started. I thought since my book was really anchored around the images, it would make sense to begin with uh, the earliest drawing available of, of the nervous system. And then to give a little bit of background about it, I had to go back 800 years and talk about Galen. Then you progress through history, and the most recent images are actually very striking. Um, the ones that are colored like rainbow colors. Can you talk a little bit about those? So, so yes, the, so the five next chapters, the rest of the book, is really about what's going on today and what's going on in the past, let's say, 30 years or so. Um, and it's no longer chronological at that point. It's no longer really trying to tell a, a, a history in a line. Um, it's, it's more thematic. So there are different ways of, of looking at the brain, different ways of probing it, different ways of imaging it, different ways of reacting chemicals with it in order to re- reveal certain things. And so each chapter has a different point of entry into the brain uh, from you know genetics and molecular biology to uh, you know various forms of microscopy, including some of the most exciting stuff, um, to physiology, which is the study of activity of neurons, the electrical activity of neurons, all the way up to uh, you know whole brain imaging, um, especially in sort of therapeutic contexts, and also simulation of brains, which is the next big frontier. So these images, right, are very are very striking. Um, I think for several reasons, but but one of them is that. If one is clever, one, one can look at several things at the same time in the brain. And, and the way that we help our eye distinguish between those different components, let's say we want to study three different types of molecules and see how they're arranged anatomically in the brain and in relation to each other. Well, you can label them different colors, right? And so our eye, of course, likes colors, our eye likes contrast. And, and also, if you're trying to communicate information, you want to sort of occupy the broadest space possible in in color space in order to sort of separate different components from each other. 
And so as a result, you get these incredibly striking images uh, of many colors highly contrasted because the best way to communicate information about who's who and who's where and what's what is to label things different colors um, and make it so that they're as different as possible from each other so we can make sense of it, how it all comes together. And so as a result, you get some really great stuff to look at. And of course, the brain itself is, is exquisite. It has this incredible architecture. And so if you sort of paint on top of that architecture, then, then, then you're in for, for some good times. Then they call it a brainbow, is that right? Yeah, so the brainbow, um, uh, the brainbow is this uh, fantastic new tool that was published in, uh, I think it was 2007. Um, and it's, it's, it's a mouse. It's a genetically modified mouse. And actually there are brainbow zebrafishes and uh, brainbow, there, there are other, other, other forms. Uh, the point is that the researchers have uh, taken advantage of um, their knowledge of genetics and molecular biology to insert genes that, uh, when they're expressed, when they're created in the cell, will result in fluorescent molecules of different colors. And so if you can find a way to get those genes into a neuron, that neuron will glow whatever color the fluorescent protein will make it, the fluorescent protein that arises from the gene. And so the brainbow is this incredibly uh, beautiful but also brilliant system in which different neurons neighboring neurons can be made to glow different colors and then they can be separated from one another, which is critical because a neuron isn't just sort of a round blob. A neuron is an incredibly large arborization. Many processes flying out in every day, which way they're sort of winding around each other. And the thing is, if, every, if all your neurons are labeled one color, it's, it's effectively impossible, or at least very difficult, to sort of make sense of who's who. You know, is this connected to this neuron, or is that connected to that neuron? You know, it's, 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 it's very messy. And so, so what the brainbow does is it makes life a lot easier by, by painting neurons different colors, and so that neighbors that are intertwining themselves around each other um, can be separable in color space. And therefore, one can then go and try to understand how are the neurons connected to each other through synapses, which is the sort of fundamental architecture of the brain, right? The, the connection, how everything is connected will determine how the brain functions. And so um, there's a great effort in the field to develop tools to figure out how things are connected to each other. And this is one of them. Um, I was wondering if you could describe in the most radio-friendly way possible your favorite image in the book. Well, my favorite image is in chapter two. This is the chapter about uh, Santiago Ramon y Cajal, uh, who is a Spanish neuroscientist, right, who founded uh, modern neuroscience. And uh, it's an image he drew of a single neuron. Uh, it's called a Purkinje cell, and it's beautiful. It has this sort of roundish th thing at the bottom, and then this entire tree that sort of sprouts out of it and goes up, and then there's this very thin line that goes down out of the page. And um, the reason... I like that image so much is, on the one hand, it has great aesthetic value, I think. It's very striking. But it also tells a very important story about how a Cajal worked and also about how successful neuroscience happens. And, and that story is, is that he didn't really take photographs of the samples he looked at in the microscope. He, had these, he would stain tissue to reveal neurons inside of it. And then what he would do is in the morning he would look at his samples and sort of keep track of things in his head. And then in the afternoon would draw from memory what he saw. And I think that's really interesting because that meant that he was specifically attuned to the overall structure of things as opposed to the fine details. Neurons look incredibly different 
depending on where you are and what kind they are. And yet he was able to find these commonalities and essentially generate a very powerful theory about what the neuron is, what its major parts are, and, and how it works, how information flows through it, the direction of information flowing through it. And, and that all arises, I think, really from his ability to take a step back and um, see the forest for the trees. And um, you've gotten some positive reception for this book. So uh, were you expecting this? And as big as it's gotten? Uh, I, I wasn't expecting that at all. Um, it was, for me, a privilege to be able to write this book. And, and that was really um, as far as I thought about it when I was making it. Um, I had um, a couple people in mind when I, when I made it. Uh, one of them is, is an artist, and the other one is a neuroscientist. And the real the, the goal was to, to make them as happy as possible with the book. And, and um, they said they were. I hope they weren't just being nice. But, but I wasn't really thinking um, kind of beyond that core audience as I was making it. And, of course, I've been delighted by the fact that other people seem to like it. I get all sorts of very interesting emails from people who it wouldn't have occurred to me would even necessarily be interested in this because at the end of the day, it is a little technical. My point is that actually a lot of beauty can be found in technique, in, in those details and how things are made, how things are studied. But I realize that that's not necessarily easy. It takes a lot of effort, I think, in order to sort of appreciate that. And so it's, it's been a very pleasant surprise that, that people have not only responded to the beauty of the imagery, which I think is probably a lot easier to get to, but also to, to some of the, the scientific aspects of this story. Uh, which also hold a lot of beauty inside of them, too. If you want to learn more about neuroscience and your beautiful brain, you can download Schoonover's full lecture at the Academy, complete with slides. Go to www.scienceandthecity.org. Science in the City is a nonprofit program from the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you this podcast, as well as the rest of our programming. As always, we love your feedback. So shoot us an email to scienceinthecity at nyas.org. Thanks for listening and see you next time.